Did you know that Alchemist Accelerator can operate a program for you? Welcome to Innovators Inside, the podcast for people working in corporate and government innovation. Brought to you by Alchemist X, the corporate services division of Alchemist Accelerator. Here you'll follow me, Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as I talk to the industry's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you don't have to go through the painful experiences that they did. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up. I'm so happy today to welcome Don Cox to the show. Don started out in the U.S. Army before becoming a police detective specializing in fraud and computer crimes. He's been a special agent for the U.S. Secret Service and an IT program director for the U.S. Department of State. Most recently, he has been chief information officer for Nova Corporation, a Navajo Nation-owned firm that provides IT to federal agencies and for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and Chief Information Security Officer for Mednax, a national medical group, and for American Public Education Incorporated, a provider of higher education. Don has been named one of the top 100 healthcare leaders and top 29 CISOs by the peer list community. And he has a master's in science and an MBA from the University of Maryland Global College. Don, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to it. You must have so many stories to tell, but if I had to pick one to ask about, it would be this. Was there a single incident or event that led you to choose cybersecurity as a career? When did you first realize its potential for good and for harm? So actually it chose me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I, I haven't traveled the most traditional path to get into IT. And even since I've been in IT, my path hasn't been traditional, especially towards the cybersecurity side of things. Um, and, and just a short story there is I was a police officer in, in Montgomery County, Maryland. I was, um, and this will get into a later story, but didn't do so well in high school. So I had to go into the army um, and then the army paid for my college and I took some night courses. And over the time I, I saw the, even though my, my degree was in criminal justice, I saw the coming of technology and I thought it was exciting. Um, so I decided to take some classes in web design and, and uh, development. And <clears throat> so one day I'm, I'm injured as a police officer and I wasn't going to be on the road for three months. And rather than letting me sit at home for three months and collect a paycheck, they wanted me to do something else. And they found out about my IT background and put me in the fraud and computer crimes unit. Well, I did so well in there the three months I was in there they decided to make it permanent and move me into that group. And once I got in there, it was, it was the law enforcement that I had never known existed. It was using technology to help uh, chase criminals, um, to prevent crimes in some sense, uh, when you start getting into the, 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 the child abductions and the online social media. And um, so, yeah, so it really chose me, but I've never looked back and said, I would have done something differently uh, from that perspective. Was there a, a moment um, that opened your eyes to the the potential of IT for these kinds of preventative and, and proactive services? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> as, a, as an investigator, you're the person or the, the group that businesses call and, and um, people call when they've been victimized by somebody online or their their child comes up missing um or 
you know, just any scenario where technology is involved, uh, where detectives are trying to solve who committed this crime, bomb threats or email threats or, you know, what have you, uh, and then to be able to prove it in court, as well as use it for intelligence purposes. So it was kind of then when I, I in this, I'm in the very beginning of, of the, when technology started to become um, used by law enforcement in mainstream. It's probably always been used by government agencies and other entities, but you know, we're talking back in the mid to late 90s, as, as I started in 1999. And you, you started seeing how technology, how seizing a computer out of a criminal's house or taking their PDA or their iPhone gave you an insight into everything that they did, who they talked to and why they talked to them. And then later on, uh, when I actually, you know, government agencies, I've worked for seven over the course of a period of time, um, working with the Immigration Customs Enforcement and being able to um, take people's information at the border uh, because of uh, some legal um, law, some law that was in place. Um, you're able to start picking out who people are talking to, where they're going, what they're doing. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different scenarios that I've, I've come across um, that led me to believe that on the one side, it's great to help prevent crime um, or to um, arrest people that have, that have you know, committed crimes. On the other side, though, I've seen the dangers that can come from it if all of this information is put in the hands of people that um, aren't ethical and are using it for other purposes. Yeah, we recently had a very high profile case in Australia where um, a woman's uh, personal details, which had been divulged to the police, were shared with her violently abusive ex-partner. Mm -hmm. And this has been something I've been involved with for a number of years. I was on the executive board of a group supporting women in technology right at the time that Gamergate exploded and Zoe Quinn became the center of that storm. And so we had a sideline in helping women lock down their, their laptop and their phone after they'd escaped from an abusive relationship or if they were targeted by, by harassers through Gamergate. And we would find ourselves talking to local police who, who just had no idea of the scale of the problem. So it's fascinating that you were working on the other side trying to educate people as well. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, and I hope this isn't a derogatory term, but uh, when I was <clears throat> learning computer forensics, there were, it was a group called the International Association of Computer Investigative Specialists. And we had people from all around the world come and teach the classes. So people from England, um, people from Germany, we even had Australians and we referred to them as our, <laughs> our Aussie friends. They were so cool. Uh, but yeah, they would come to the U.S. and it was two weeks of intensive training. But um, yeah, so I, I actually I haven't talked to them in such a long time, but I have some friends that were uh, Australian um, police or law enforcement that would do criminal investigations. Uh, they were a blast. I loved listen, just listening to their classes. It, it was it was challenging, though, in the early days of, of Gamergate to um, impress on police the seriousness of the online harassment yeah. that some folks were facing. They, they thought it wasn't a real world issue, but we had people having to leave their houses. And I think that's become more apparent over the, the, the last few years. But have mm -hmm. you seen that that trajectory among law enforcement of, of having to accept that what happens on online is, is actually real? Yes, that, that, that's depending on the location, right? So 
you know, when you're talking about the bigger cities, they see more of it and they have people that are more equipped to, to tra train to handle it and they have more resources to deal with it. Um, so in, in the cities, you'll see it adopted and most things adopted more often and, and like human trafficking. Um, I, I know in 1998, 99, I'm sitting in a class and I'm kind of like, yeah, we're Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. What We don't have human trafficking. Two weeks later, we stopped our first truck in the middle of downtown and we have human trafficking. Um, it just it was an eye opener. So the same thing, um, you know, talking about stories, I had a, a lady and I used to teach classes to to um, parents. The PTA would, would ask me to come out and, and provide um, classes to parents on how can you protect your kids or how can you find out what your kids are doing. I mean, I used to go to the elementary school, sixth grades and middle school, just to see what the kids were doing because they're the ones that I need to learn from. I need to learn what they're doing online and how they're doing it so I can help protect them or how do I can talk to their parents. And I'm seeing kids hacking into the school grades. I'm seeing kids online. Well, you know, this, this one young person, um, it's, it's a she. Mom had was doing everything right with AOL's online security, which was a really good product back in, in 1990s and 2000, probably one of the best. And unfortunately, this young lady was going to her friend's house and using her friend's computer to talk to an online predator. You know, she gets meets this person. Next thing you know, she's out in the state of Washington from Washington, D.C. And it was only because the, the people on the other side were like, got, she got introduced as his girlfriend. They were like, um, she looks 16. And so, you know, they looked online to missing kids and that, um, that resulted in a, in a call. And, and luckily uh, the, the family was concerned about it. But I'd say Montgomery County Police, they've, they're, they're groups that they have there that deal with youth. They've been actively online with um, the state police and, and all the other in, uh, um, groups within the United States and probably overseas through Interpol trying to thwart uh, these crimes that occur online against against children or in social media. When it comes to adults and harassment, and you know, there's a lot of famous ones out there now, I think it really is just what laws are on the books and what can you enforce that limits what police will get involved with and do, uh, and do right? So a threat is a threat, but unless you can act upon the threat, it's really not a crime. So that's, I think where the laws haven't caught up with technology. You probably hear that a lot. The laws yeah. have not caught up with technology. Yeah, it takes a little time. So from the police, you moved into these federal agencies. Uh, tell us about that arc <laughs> of your career. What was that like? Yeah, so again, it, it chose me. I didn't choose it. <laughs> um, but, you know, value it. So um, as a result of, of one of the things that happened to me was a police officer, I, I had to have surgery and which resulted in um, the police department retiring me. And it would just so happen that through that international association that I'd made some friends that had some government contracts. So I jumped from the police department directly into a role supporting the government. It happened to be the state department in helping them to um, use technology to prevent passport fraud um, to help look for a whole whole other uh, host of things, financial crimes. And in 2005, I had gone back to college in order to get a master's degree. I knew that if I was going to testify in court, it's a combination of training, education, certifications, experience that allows you to testify on a witness stand as a 
um, expert witness, right? So you can give your opinions, you can give all those kinds of things, which helps in the types of criminal investigations that I was involved in. So over the course of six years, I had over 300 investigations that I was responsible for, small units, you had to do a lot. And it was murders, rapes, robberies, um, car theft. I mean, it, it was a whole host of things. You know, And to that end, a lot of it was innovating. Nothing existed at that time. So we had to come up with the tools, the, the ways of, uh, you know, every iPhone was, an iPhone or, or cell phone was changing every six months. The operating systems were changing. The technology was changing. So it was a huge kind of, how do you take what's happening and, and, and turn it into being able to obtain the information, uh, prove that it, it could be reproduced, right? Following that scientific method and then being able to, to testify to it in court. Um, so there was a lot of that. All right, so while I was in my graduate program, unbeknownst to me, it was actually a chief information officer program. That would give me a certificate to be a CIO in the federal government. Also a cer certificate to say I had the competencies to be a CIO in commercial America. And at the time, because CIOs were actually becoming a C-level position and getting paid the big bucks, I figured, what the heck, I'm 39, <laughs> 40 years of age, I could use a six-figure you know, income compared to what I was making. And so I started going down a CIO path. I, I listened to a recruiter who said, you know, in order for you to become a CIO, go take every position a CIO must manage, um, and then you'll be able to speak to it. I never lost the passion for cybersecurity. And that's kind of why I'm in the CISO role today. Some would say it's a step back. And I say it's, for some it may be, but for me, I don't see it that way. Yeah. Um, I can take the business acumen and, and move it into the CISO role. And I can also help be an innovator because as a CIO, that's what you have to be. You have to yeah. work with the chief technology, chief technology officer. You have to work with the business. You have to work with everybody to innovate and consistently be innovating so you can stay competitive um, and, and stay afloat. Yeah, I mean, to me, in some ways, the the CISO role is is the pointy end of innovation because um, security really is an arms race. You know, yes. in the CIO role, you have competitors; uh, in the CISO role, you have antagonists. It's, yeah. it's where the innovation really matters. Yep. Yeah, I, I have some some sayings I've acquired over the years that I use. Um, most security departments have always been seen as a no department. Um, right. Can't do it because it'll commit this or you know create this vulnerability. I'm the exact opposite. And, and I don't know whether it's a combination of law enforcement and, and just knowing what's out there in the real world and how insecure everything really is. And it just comes down to risk um, and risk avoidance and putting controls around or whether it was being a CIO. Um, and, uh, and I have a, a funny story there that I won't derail about my first CIO role and what happened to me. But um, I really, it comes down to, and I, I stole this from one of my more senior people and mentors, I'll never say no to somebody. I'll just tell you what percentage of yes I can give you. Right? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's, and, and it's because either the person, you know, this is what they want and, and, and say that's 100% in their mind. But when you actually give them what they need, you might give 60%. So you call it a win and you move on, right? Because there's always yeah. that gap between requirements gathering and, and reality, you know, the, the whole conversation. Um, so yeah, so that that's like one. And, you know, I, I'm always, and this is, where I think technology's gone wrong. Um, I think we jump too quickly into we own everything that's technology. 
I have practiced and preached in my last few roles. I don't own technology, I implement it. I'm, I'm a partner. The business owns technology. You tell me what you want to accomplish and what you need. You put it in your budget, you fund it, and I'll implement it for you. Well, the first time I did that, I tried to get security to a zero budget or actually all of IT. I didn't get Christmas cards from my peers that year. <laughs> they were a little annoyed at me that their budget shot up. But you have to do that in order for, to get them a seat at the table, get them involved, get them concerned about I, I tech, you know, everything, IT yeah. and security. I mean, security is everybody's responsibility, right? We hear it all the time. So, yeah, you can't be a cost center. You've got to be a support to the business. Yeah, yeah. So my funny story was, uh, you know, years in law enforcement, and I always get mad whenever I go into companies and they stop the threat from happening, and you know, because I wasn't able to collect log files, and people didn't know how to collect log files, and so my first experience, the Department of Energy is where I kind of really jumped into. Um, full oh, so full, low stakes, just so, yeah, you know. yeah. You know, nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, I, not even nuclear weapons, right? The power grid, which we hear about, right. you know, water, it, you got everything there. And so I used to tell people when we interviewed them, it, it's like dog years. You're at energy for six months. It's like seven years in the real world because you're just, yeah. you're getting, you know, everybody wants your technology. And, and, and that's where I kind of learned. It's not just the company that owns the technology that the threat actors are going after. They're going after anybody that could touch that that technology or that that name or you know, law firms and, and all kinds of other things. So, um, yeah. So my team comes to me and they says, "Hey, we have a, another entity. Uh, it's a contractor who supports the government and it relates to all of our travel um, type. And there's a lot of um, malicious traffic coming off their network." And so I said, well, you know, what's it connected to and how does it impact us? And when we got through the whole conversation, I go, all right, shut it down, call up and notify them. So first I get yelled at by my security team um, because I shut it down. It didn't keep it going. It didn't set up honeypots and didn't do all these things. And, you know, my first question was, well, did you brief us on these honeypots and how we should take care of this and do this? And of course they didn't, you know, have an answer for that. But then interesting, when we called the company that was um, providing the service, they didn't believe we are who we say we were. <laughs> so I was like, all right, how am I going to deal with this, right? Call the switchboard number you get off the internet and have them route you to us. I, you know, it was really weird. So we said, look, we're just going to send you an email from an official, you know, DOE email address with what's going on from there. Hey, you know, it's on you. We've notified you. Uh, yeah, so it was pretty interesting. Wow. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's funny. The, the the risk um the risk lens is really interesting because I'm using it a lot in my my innovation practice now. I go mm. in to clients and say, um, don't think of this in terms of the billion dollar businesses you might build. Think of it in terms of the billion dollar businesses your competitors will build if you don't yeah. stay ahead of of you know the status quo. Mm -hmm. So using that risk lens and and going through all of their activities and saying, well, what's the worst thing that could happen here? actually turns out to be really useful when you're thinking about innovation because, you know, even your uh, remediations, even, even the interventions that you're making, you can create the risk and then you can assess the danger of standing still versus the danger of, of moving forward and, and make some kind of mathematical uh, decision um, based on, on the comparison of the two. Agree. And I've always found that being reactive is so much harder than being proactive. And what I mean by that is, if I'm out using the latest and greatest technologies, 
that are out there in our in our in our technology ecosystem well the technology hasn't been out there long enough for the threat actors to actually figure out how to exploit it in some senses right or a, a known vulnerability will come up but there's no exploit for it um, at the moment and so i i actually um, not through my law enforcement days, but post, I've, I've come to know some hackers and, and, and people that have spent time in jail and, and had a lot of great conversations with them. And this is like the one thing they agree. There's not many good hackers that are going out there inventing new types of hacks. They're just using the ones that exist, but finding out where it would be effective for them, right? So it's, it's a little, little bit of effort on their part. So, so I see innovating as a way of securing your organization as yeah. opposed to um, you know, being reactive. Yes, there's some stress on the implementing and get it integrated and, and the likes, but that's where you stop going with 16 different products and you just try to find one company or two companies that can help you do all the work and, and, and take the risk. So I see innovation as a benefit. Um, I also see it as a cheaper way of doing IT because if it's an innovative product, I've always been on the forefront of, of new products. That was kind of my cornerstone in the government was I was always willing to take those projects or or talk to vendors. That's a, another CIO uh, when I was at Department of Energy, um, where, where I got a, a lot of my kind of the one CIO that was there helped me along lot, right? Um, one of his sayings was uh, IT should be baked in nice, not iced on. So I used to use that yeah. one a lot. And I've stopped using that one. His the no was him, and but he used to make us as as IT leaders. He used to make us walk around and talk to every vendor on the yep. floor of a CIO conference just for a minute. I mean, they're paying big money to be there, but think of what you can learn from talking to each one of them bits and pieces. And I found that very valuable. So I set aside like every Friday, and I'll meet with vendors for 15, 30 minutes, you know, at the most, and I tell them, "It's all you guys, fifteen minutes. So impress me, or you know, try again some other time." And uh, I've come across some really great security products. Um, a couple that I'm on the board for, you know, I have the, the um, uh, you know, the stock that's, you know, worth nothing when they give it to you. And hopefully, <laughs> yeah. you know, they become the unicorn. Um, but there's some cool ones out there that um, it's taken them a little while, but, the, but they'll get there. I mean, things like breach and attack um, simulation. Well, there's a company out there that's doing breach and, breach and attack emulation. It actually emulates all the tools that are in your environment. So there's defense in depth, and it'll tell you where the tools in your stack are failing. CIO and CISOs never had that, right? They've always yeah. had to just agree that the, that the vendor, that the tool's doing its job or the combination are doing their job. So I love innovation and I love implementing new products. Yeah, and I sort of came to risk from the other trajectory. I was always like in love with new products and oh, shiny and look at all the stuff we can do with this. And it's been 25 years of hard experience of learning to think, how would a bad actor take this yeah. and, and exploit it? And, and incorporating that into my practice has made it a lot stronger. Yeah, and that's what I, I when I hire for security engineers, I, it's one of my questions. When you approach how you're going to implement security, how do you implement it? And the first answer is best practice. And I go, eh, wrong. You know, well, what are you trying to prevent? Um, well, trying to prevent somebody from exploiting the system. Okay, so what types of, you know, let's just call them hats out there. What time of hats are out there? Well, you know, black hats and white hats and gray hats. And Okay, good. So are you, are you trying to engineer a system 
to keep people in, to keep people out? You know, what are you trying to do? And then eventually they answer it and I go, so really you're trying to, what should your mindset be? Well, it should be that of a threat actor and or an, an inside vulnerability, right? Because I mean, a threat actor inside or outside is a threat actor, but inside you have people that just do things, they make a mistake and they open yep. up ports and they, you know, especially with the cloud. Oh my God, you, you can read in the newspaper, all the people that are implementing cloud and don't know what they're doing. And, you know, data's flying out of AWS S3 buckets. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's crazy. When you look back over your career, Don, what are you proudest of? Um, what am I proudest of? Okay, even though you, you sent me that question in advance, it still stumped me <laughs> because there are just so many things um, there. So, I'm, you know, I'm actually most proud of the people along my journey that I have helped grow into more senior roles. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just, just the last company I was with, Mednex, the team that um, I helped build. I wouldn't say I built, right? But I helped build. Um, they've all been promoted to, to managers and directors and, and, and some of them didn't even think of themselves as, as that. So I'm most proud of the teams and the individuals that I've built that are actually being productive members of technology. Oh, and not even technology too, because I can look back further and um, you know, my, t my short time I was at Department of Labor, there's some, some people there, um, so, some ladies that were BAs and now I'm seeing their vice presidents of companies. Um, I was a professor uh, for the University of Maryland Global College, which used to be University of Maryland University College, teaching project management. And some of the people that are there are CEOs of companies. And, and not that they attribute their success to me, but you know that's what I'm most proud of. In some way, I might have contributed to how they're successful. So I, th I think that's the most, you know, for me, that's it. Yeah, creating space for people to grow. There's, there's yeah. nothing else like it. Yeah. And that's like part of my philosophy. And, and, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, you can go to my LinkedIn page. I mean, the last like 16 people, it's all about how he empowered me or he enabled me or, um, you know, gave me the runway, the bandwidth. Um, you know, to me, there's there's no good news and bad news. There's just news. So let's figure it out. Right. I tell people I'll never yell at you. It's it's you know, let's let's figure out how do we move forward from here. Um, you know, it's always do what you think is right at the moment. And then, you know, if it's the wrong thing, hey, we learned from it. Uh, yeah, so it, it's all of those things. And I, I think that helps foster, um, you know, trust. It helps foster just a better working environment by empowering people. If you had one do-over, what would you do differently? Um, so I thought about this and it's probably selfish, but I probably would have done better in high school. So that... <laughs> So that I wouldn't have a 2.3 GPA and I might've been able to play professional baseball for a little while. Cause that's all right. I'm going to, I'm going to play this one for my kids. So <laughs> yeah. And actually I got it. I got, if that's a proper grammar, but I was able to obtain a copy of my high school transcript, ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. And it took years before I showed, I have a 22 year old son and a and a 19 year old daughter and they're both doing really well in school you know one's a straight a student and the other one's the 3.25 sometimes a c or a d but c's get degrees exactly they're both you know very successful in their own way and 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 it's lucky that i had the experiences i had the education 
the, the wherewithal to read about, you know, rearing children and mindsets and all of that to understand that they're different and they need to be treated differently. Um, yep. They still frustrate you, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, in the end it's, it's, um, it's a great thing. And yeah. So just cause I wonder, I, I wonder if, if I had, I was recruited by some top colleges to go play baseball, but they didn't want to take the chance on my 2.3 GPA average, even though it's 1985, which I thought sports were, you know, the big thing. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, my, my childhood was similar to what you would see in, in probably families today, which is, which is sad. Um, but back in the eighties was becoming commonplace was mom and dad divorcing. And so my parents divorced when I was 10 and mom couldn't afford to pay for college. It just, you know, dad wasn't helpful in in paying the bills. And so my mom really wanted me to have an education. She, you know, she had me when she was 18 and had her life's, you know, set over. So, um, I don't, I think it's those things. Um, or maybe it's just something else inside of me that, that wanted me to succeed, but, there was nobody there to push me through school and I didn't see the value like my wife and I do with our kids. You know, school's important. We'll help you get through it. We'll get you teachers, um, you know, whatever the after school help. We'll get you whatever you need. And also understand that a C and a B are OK, you know, yep. but you got to get A's and other things to help with that. And um, yeah, so that's my maybe if I had a do over. Um, but here's the caveat, the star. But if I did that and I really liked it and I did get to pay Major League Baseball, I'd still want to come back and live the life that I lived um, now because yeah. the people I've met, the things I've done, the, the places I've got to travel, all the stuff, I wouldn't, I want to say I wouldn't give it up for the world um, and, you know, no amount of money, nothing because it's, it's been absolutely amazing, the things I've been that's, involved with, seen and done. That's great to hear. We've talked a lot about innovation and all of its benefits and how it can underpin a, a good security posture. What do you think makes innovation so difficult? Why is it so hard to get people to adopt new things? Uh, well, to your conversation about risk, right? People, yeah. if they don't understand it, if they don't see the business value, and, and, and that's sometimes telling stories is hard for some people to do. Um, and so being able to take, um, so, so yeah, I guess, you know, from an IT perspective, they, they've never really had to do that. So, you know, an example I've learned over time is if you're trying to sell an IT capability that would help prevent um, a threat actor from getting inside the organization, then figure out a way to equate it to a business need that would help increase their ROI or, or position them in the market so that people would be more attracted to do work for them. And so... You know, one example was, um, you know, getting a, a SOC uh, or an SOC, the, what's it, service operator, I can never remember what SOC stands for, but SOC, SOC type one or type two, that, that sort of certification or attestation, or high trust, or, you know, just get compliance in some way. You're getting a third party to say that you, you have achieved these uh, results like ISO and the rest. Um, and then from that, right, the business can then use that to go sell their services and get same thing with CMMI and, and, and the rest of it. So, um, but, I, and also I think it's, it's an unwillingness of the people inside um, to put resources against it with everybody, you know, not able to hire all the people they need, don't understand how to use project management and roll contract resources in and out, uh, leaders not being able to, to manage external resources, overseas resources. I mean, that's, 
some of the biggest problems you see in technologies is I have to have a butt in a seat, right? And I think COVID actually, and which was a very bad thing, helped us get over that hump of, of finding leaders that can manage resources that aren't sitting in your office or, yep. and, and, and also help projectize. Say, look, you got 20 hours to get this done, get it done. Um, so I, I think it's the fear factor is, yeah. is probably, um, it, it may also be cost, right? So when you're trying to innovate, um, people with their, their planning of, of future needs and, and resources, um, they're not willing to take that risk on a new technology because if it doesn't pay off, then, you know, that's sunk cost and nobody wants sunk cost, especially when you're publicly traded, your risk, your, uh, um, you know, stakeholders don't like it. So it's a combination of, of, of things. Um, it could just be on the part of the, the people that have the innovative technology, not being able to explain how it can help your business. I mean, I can't right. tell you how many times everybody tells you they have the new latest, greatest prod product. And when you sit down and you talk to them, you're like, okay, but how's it supposed to save me money? How's it supposed to secure me better? How's it just, you know, ask the five whys. And if they can't get to the end, you're like, yeah, you're not for me. So I think it's a combination of things. How would you distill all of this experience into one or two lessons for our listeners? Oh, never happen. <laughs> <laughs> never happen. Oh, one or two lessons, all my experience and knowledge. Um, so great question. Kind of thought I was able and ready to answer for this, but, you know, give yourself some time to think and you change your answers. Um, but I, th I think one, one way would be to surround yourself with people that are willing to learn, willing to take chances, um, aren't people that are, uh, they're open mindset versus closed mindset. Um, they're not clock watchers. They, they're, and this is when I interview people I ask you, ask them, you know, how do you learn? Um, and, and, and then just from that perspective, continuing to challenge kind of the status quo. Okay. We got here today, but what's next? How do we make this better? What's different? So I think that would be one is, is the people that you put around you, um, would be a great one. And then I don't know if this is the same thing, but, um, you know, always be looking at what's next in technology so that you can get an idea or a sense of what you may need or what, what the business may need or what direction the business may want to go. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, technology is not about the, the IT department. It's about the business. And, and so kind of putting yourself at the hip of the people that are within your business um, and so that, I mean, to that end, I always look for the innovators in the business, right? To, to use your word, there are some technically savvy people within the businesses that are just dying to have input or, or to help guide or direct or, or to, um, to test out. I mean, they, some of these people, like when I was work, working in, in the healthcare field, uh, field. There were doctors that were like, well, this, this product's better than this one. Well, why? And they've already done the research and told you why. So I think, you know, the two lessons that I would to really talk about would be just people, right? Yeah. On your team side, 
people with an open mindset, willing to learn, willing to succeed, not worried about failure, willing to take risks and understand that they'll be cared for even if they fail. Fail fast, obviously, right? That's what you're always told. And then on the other side, the business side, to keep it along the line of innovation is, is partner with the people that are in your organization. Um, and if you can, outside the organization, right? So I'm part of InfraGuard, which is the FBI's group um, that, that takes in a lot of information and then shares it with other groups about risks and threats and other things. So um, it's, it's really about the, the, the groups, right? Surrounding yourself with groups and people. We touched on this briefly, but how do you think the pandemic might affect businesses in the longer term? Uh, well, it'll definitely create new businesses um, and it'll close down some businesses. Um, I think when you when you talk about it from a, a corporate IT perspective, it is going to force companies to change the technology they use to uh, provide services to their employees. Most companies have figured out how to um, how to, to provide services to their customers um, via mm-hmm. e-commerce and, and some other things, but they haven't figured out how to do that for their employees at a, at a large scale. And then how to measure their performance. That seems to be one of the things from the day that, let's say March of 2020, where everybody started going off site, it was the first question, how do I, ma- uh, how do I measure the performance of my employees. Well, you should have been measuring the employees of your contractors, um, which is to contracts and, and tasks and everything. So why can't you translate into the same thing for your employees? Because really you have a contract with your employee to do work. So how do you start measuring that? And there's some tools out there to do it. So I think that's going to change. Obviously, security is going to change. I mean, if anything blew up, it was my um, log files, because now I start having people logging in from all over the world. I have I had one employee who every week they moved from city to city to city <laughs> and I'm going, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm in my RV. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I'm just hitting up different national parks that I've never hit in my life. And I go, oh my God, what a great idea. You know, use this time to travel. Um, yeah. So it, it creates that, right? So there's an opportunity um, for them to see something then it, it, it spawns innovation. So you start looking at the companies who can say, you know, how do I get this person to submit into a dashboard that says, I'm like, like you do with your credit card, I'm traveling and I'm going to be in New Mexico this month. So now when you start charging in New Mexico, your, your, your credit card is not getting shut off. Um, so it, it creates that kind of innovation. And, and uh, it, there's a whole host of other things that, uh, collaboration tools, how do you allow people to collaborate, whiteboards, um, uh, you know, just there's a whole host of things that, um, that I see that are very positive out of this. Yeah, yeah. You've worked in some of the most stressful and intense parts of our industry. How do you avoid burnout? Um, so, exercise, vacation, <laughs> um, those are all the things that that you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> um, I mean, how do you avoid it? Uh, well, I'll tell you, like, you know, what happens. I mean, people start drinking. Um, people start doing a whole bunch of things that, that aren't very helpful t- to themselves. And that's, you. Re- so h- how do you avoid burnout is you have managers and, 
and you have people that are actually watching out for your workload, you know, workload. Um, I found, especially with people being remote, not being so, I guess, confined on the eight to five workday. It's like, right. hey, get your work done and, and be available, right? In the day and age of cell phones and I mean, I mean, I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, unless I turn my phone off at night. But you know, there's always backups if, if they need to get to me. So I, I, th I think helping people have a, a work, um, you know, work balance, work life balance. Um, people come to you and say, you know, management style, past organizations. I, you know, I, I have to go to a doctor's appointment. <laughs> okay, well. Don't take leave. Just go to the doctor's appointment because mm -hmm. you probably work more than your 40 hour work week. So yep. just go to your doctor's appointment. If you need to be at your kid's event, then go to your kid's event. Um, and, and I always impress that on, on my teams and, and the individuals. And I say, listen, this is a job that pays for all of the things that you do when you're able to take leave or on your weekends or things like that. This is not your life mission. Um, and you're not the only person. And, and that's another thing I do with my teams is I overlap them. So if one person leaves, I don't have a huge gap. Right. Um, and then if you want to take vacation, it's not like the world's going to come to an end and or in the world. I mean, you know, your job's not going to stop getting done. So it's putting those those things in place. It's also telling the team that those things in place. It's showing them that those things are in place by tabletop exercises or, you know, Hey, Jose, you need to take a day off today. Go. Do not answer your phone because if I catch you texting and answering your phone, you know, then um, I'm not going to be happy with you. And they understand that I'm, you know, joking, but they also know that I'm serious. Um, so it, it strikes me as very characteristically done that I asked about your burnout and you started to talk about how you prevent burnout in others. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I thought I was immune to burnout. Um, <laughs> Having, having been in the military, having been a police officer and seen and done the things that I've done, I, I thought I was immune to it and I thought it wouldn't impact me. And it, it wasn't until, and I, I won't say where, but my role, um, I, I was actually one of those people that was drinking probably too much, you know, or, or it was every night I was having a drink and I was stressed out. My blood pressure was up and, you know, thank goodness nothing um, came of it, but it's a real thing. There was nobody around me to say, hey, are you okay? Are you, you know, you burnt out. So I didn't have a, a I didn't have a peer. I didn't have a mentor. Um, and it was, you know, probably just happenstance that, that I'm no longer there that I was able to go, oh, yeah, I did have a problem. Or, you know, it was leading towards a problem. Um, so that's probably the part that's the hardest, right? The, the saying is that closer to the sun you get, the faster you get burned kind of thing. Um, there's yeah. not many people to look out for you. So, you know, when you look for a job and, and when I interviewed recently for a job, it was one of the hard questions I had to answer because it was like, okay, I want to go to work. I want to be a sister. I want to do these things. But I asked the question, I'm like, are you interested in, in me growing? Are you interested in mentoring me and, and challenging me and, you know, me being seen as a peer as, as um, you know, you looking out for my best interest and not abusing me. And, and the person that was interviewing me, they're like, I don't think I've ever been asked that. And, yeah. but the answer is yes. And it was so honest and genuine. It was like, no, I'm, 
I'm just as interested and concerned about you as I would want my boss to be, or I want my wife to be, or, you know, I want my friends to be so and you know, honestly, I want you to do the same thing for me. If you see me doing saying acting in a certain way, get me some help, pull me aside, right? Because there's no HR program out there or, you know, any that really can watch you and track you and see what's going on. There might be technology out there that the government owns, I could tell you, but <laughs> you know, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm always cognizant of, and, and maybe it's through my education, training, learning experiences um, that I'm very cautious and concerned of the people that I work with and helping them to be happy and successful. Part of that is promoting them for the, or, or getting them paid for the work that they're doing. How often have I been in companies where we pay somebody $80,000 a year to do a job that we hire somebody six months later and we're paying them $140,000 a year? Yeah. It's like, why are we doing that? Now, when you go ask HR to start paying them, no, we have a policy that says they can't make more than 10%. So I have to let him leave the organization for six months to come back in. It's something that he deserves or she deserves. I go, that just doesn't make any sense. And and you're frustrating people with, you know, they, they have a wife and kids. It's like, or a husband and kids. It's like, that's not right. So yeah. it's trying to make all those things. What does the future look like as you look at our industry? If you could wave a magic wand and everything for the next five years goes exactly the way you hope. What do things look like in 2026? Automation. Less, pe <laughs> less people yeah. making decisions about security, right? Um, it really is. I mean, at the rate by which attacks are happening, if we as a society, you know, let's, let's just say Australia as a country, you know, United States as a country and, and Germany and whoever else it may be, right? Um, Israel's done this really well. Um, you just look at all the technology that's coming out of uh, uh, Israel these days. Um, we really have to get to a point where we start letting computers make decisions to prevent bad activities um, sooner. Because if we don't, we're, we're stuck with the, how long does it take for a human to realize it's a threat and stop it? And can they? So that's if I could if I could wave a magic wand, um, there would be some automation out there that's intelligent, um, and I'm not going to use the word artificial intelligence because that's got a whole nother machine learning um, that that would get us a little faster towards um, a, a more secure environment. Um, we would start looking at our security tools from the perspective of their capabilities and what do they really do and what can they do. Um, that might be another one because right now the the cybersecurity sphere ecosystem world of technologies is just all over the place with so many different things that it's just hard. I, I went to RSA for the first time like two Oh, wow. <laughs> two, yeah. I always have, well, it was either I couldn't go because the government wouldn't give me money or um, I wasn't high enough in the food chain to go or um, it, you know, just operational issues, but I went the year before the pandemic happened. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, I was just overwhelmed with the number of vendors that were there. It was so, uh, voluminous that the vendors were actually starting to take up space in hotels that surround the, uh, the RSA event and start having their own 
come in for an hour or two, wine tasting, bourbon tasting, this, you know, all kinds of, it was a competition with RSA for, for you know, vendor space. And it was, uh, it was actually, it was really weird to see that. And I, I think RSA has got it or started to see that. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I mean, and most of the vendors that, that I saw on the floor, I'd already spoken to, um, like on my Friday events, just because it was out there. And somehow you get on a list. If you're willing to talk to vendors, there's this list out there that you get put on and your box just gets blown up with uh, with requests. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, you know, the, the magic wand thing would definitely be automation. Um, I would just stick with automation. And what does the future look like for you personally? So the future for me is I'm a CIO or a CISO making a million dollars a year someplace. One of those. <laughs> One of those big jobs, right? Because I know I can do it now. I've, I've got all the experience. Um, so that's one. You know, you always have to have goals um, and dreams. And look, if I can do it with the company that I'm at, you know, thumbs up. But if I can't, then, you know, that's another, uh, another conversation. Um, you know, another goal of mine, and I'm tossing this back and forth. I haven't figured out what the right one is to go get a doctorate in, in either cybersecurity or go to law school. Um, yep. I, I think with my law enforcement experience and all the things that I've done in the the technology space, I think I'd be a great asset to, um, and, and plus, well, I'll say this, and I don't mean it in a, in a, in a derogatory way in any way, shape, or form, but I'm trying to I think of how to say this a nice way, but I'm kind of a champion for the the right way things should be done, not the politically correct way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think I'd if a person came into me and, and I've had this experience once before. I got hired by a company and I told them up front, I am not going to be used as a computer forensic expert to put doubt in some law enforcement investigation. I'm just not right. gonna do it. I'll tell you if the person did it or didn't do it. I will tell you if law enforcement didn't follow a process, failed or something like that. But if I come to you and I say, you know, look, there's no, this person did this crime and, and, and the law enforcement did what they were supposed to do. I'm, I'm not going to go look for an alternative theory for you and sit on a witness stand and testify. My reputation is worth more than any money you could pay me. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't do that. And I mean, besides that, just be happy and healthy enough and, and retire early enough, maybe 75 or 80 that, you know, I can hopefully spend the next 20, 15 years, whatever it is, kind of watching my um, kids, kids grow, uh, my grandchildren and, you know, having a great time, my wife traveling around the world or something. That sounds awesome. Yeah. What is the best way for our listeners to connect with you or follow your work? Uh, LinkedIn, but, uh, and when you try to connect with me on LinkedIn, um, you know, put a little note in there, heard you on the alchemist, alchemist, did I say that correctly? Alchemist. Alchemist, yeah. Um, you know, podcast and, and really enjoyed listening to you and love to chat with you. Um, if you want to sell me your product, then say, look, I'd like 15 minutes of your time, uh, so that I'll know you listen to the podcast, uh, you know, to chat about my pro- product. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. All probably bad things, right? Because that's how everybody communicates. And there's probably some out there I should be on that I don't know. 
Um, yeah, so I'd say LinkedIn's the best way to get in touch with me. The other way is just, you know, Google Don Cox and whatever, and I'm sure I'll pop up on the internet somewhere with my home phone number or cell phone number or something. Um, but yeah, I'd say LinkedIn. exercise for the hackers. Yeah. Don. <laughs> yeah. LinkedIn's the best way to get to me. That's about the only thing that I really, uh, that's the only thing that I'm on right now. Don, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. And we wish you well. Thank you. And I wish you well also. This has been Alchemist X Innovators Inside. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on our blog. And stay connected by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you found the podcast valuable, feel free to share or tell your colleagues. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments, feedback, suggestions for future guests, or just say hi by emailing us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com. 